0: hello and welcome to rise for racial justice the podcast i'm bernetta parson and on this show we bring you the finest thought leaders in the anti-racist and education realms with the goal of sharing resources for liberation transformation consciousness raising and anti-racist action our guest today is rhonda v mcgee Rhonda is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and an internationally recognized thought and practice leader focused on integrating mindfulness into higher education, law and social change work. She has written numerous articles and book chapters on mindfulness in legal education and on teaching about race using mindfulness. Her first book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Welcome to the show, Rhonda. I'm very happy (laughs) to have you here.
1: (laughs) Hey, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
0: I think like there are a lot of things I'm going to talk to you about, but I want to start with the way that I became acquainted with you was because I was interested in higher education administration using mindfulness. And I was involved with the association for contemplative mind in higher education. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you were involved in that organization. Can you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: So, the umbrella organization for the Association of Contemplative Mind in Higher Ed is called the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society. And I became involved with that organization uh, probably around 2000, I want to say, eight or so. I was called in to serve as sort of a mediator, as the members of the board uh, of that organization were struggling with how to evolve the nonprofit that they were in the midst of a financial crisis. So, and it's helpful maybe to say this just because the, the name of the organization was the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society, which sounds like it could have a broad range of different goals and objectives and projects going. And it kind of had over the years, and at the point at which this conflict arose that I had been brought in to help resolve, the organization had like three sort of distinct, almost silos of, of, of operation for this little nonprofit. One was focused on law, one was focused on social justice, and one was focused on higher education. So law, social justice, and higher education, and it's all were-
0: your areas. <laughs> <laughs>
1: areas and and so they called they they have some one of the members of the board knew me and he realized these were all my areas and he thought I might be a good person to help them mediate this conflict around like do we need to have all these three distinct areas is there a way to integrate them after helping them navigate through that i then became on the board myself and ultimately chaired the board for a while so that organization evolved this Association for Contemplative Mind in Higher Education, which was an effort to have a network of folks in higher ed who were being supported in exploring how contemplative practices might really evolve higher ed, frankly, um, or contemplative approaches to teaching and learning might help evolve out higher ed. And implicit in what I'm saying is that the way we ended up resolving the big conflict (laughs) that was brought in to help resolve was to say, we probably can't do everything. Um, Is there a way that this network, which is mostly comprised of people in academia, can really draw on the commitments of social justice and change the system from within using contemplative approaches? Yeah, it,
0: um, for me, it was really important, uh, because as an administrator, I felt so overwhelmed. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of professional development with staff. And, you know, just to even bring in the idea, I think a lot of people didn't even understand, you know, that they could take a breath <laughs> during the day, um, you know, for themselves, or, you know run a meeting with contemplative practices so it, it was really important to me.
1: Yeah that's so good to hear and to know mm-hmm. and you know what you describe I don't know how long ago it was that you came across. Yeah
0: this. yeah it was um, early 2010s uh, early to mid 2010s mm-hmm.
1: and so here we are 10 plus years later and I just got off an in interaction with a number of people researchers teachers scholars who are saying the exact same thing like thank you for giving us today in this session you just offered a moment to pause and to pause deeply like we're still running almost on empty in these places of teaching and learning and scholarship and research and leadership development right and so having this um this way of just kind of continuously raising the, the light, shining a light, putting up that mirror and saying, hey, this is how we're doing what we say we're doing. We say we're out here trying to help train other people <laughs> or right. living more effectively in these times. How are we as we do this work? And can Absolutely. we do this differently, right? Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, yes. Um, So the name of your book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Can you define for the listeners what is mindfulness and what is racial justice?
1: Yeah. So how I'm going to, of course, just be, you know, with humility, just defining them how I use them. Um, Mindfulness. I've been saying these days that, like, that's such a good question, like what, what do you mean? And we, we need to ask that of anyone who's talking about mindfulness or talking about practicing mm-hmm. mindfulness because it's a term that right now is being used very broadly, but it does mean so many different things to different people. And so I think generally speaking, how it is that we may cultivate a capacity for being more aware of the moments of our lives in the context of the fullness of our lives. So how can we, with intentionality, right, so cultivate the capacity on purpose, pay attention to what's happening? And by that, I don't mean just to say this narrow moment, but I mean that moment in some context, right? What's happening uh, mm-hmm. here in, this, in these different dimensional kinds of ways, right? What's happening inside myself, what's happening interpersonally, if I'm engaged with others, what's happening in my culture and time and climate. It's so important to realize we have the power to place our attention where we choose to place it, but then um, paying attention in a particular way. So with a kind of, let's call it friendly openness, and by which I mean to say, Let's say curiosity. Um, sometimes we use the phrase non judgment, which immediately mm-hmm. makes people start getting judgy. So right. they, well, of course I'm gonna judge some things, right? It's like, okay, okay, okay. Let's say curiosity. <laughs> and especially in law, we're like, yeah, what? I mean, I'm a judge, something, right? You know, I didn't come here not to judge. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's just be curious. <laughs> so paying attention on purpose, with that attitude of curiosity. And what do we pay attention attention to then? Clearly, we could be paying attention to a lot of things. What if we just start with something that's readily accessible from right where we are, the sensations of being alive in a body and breathing? So we identified the breath and the breathing in the body as a sort of object of awareness. Like this is what we're going to place our awareness on for them, you know, for the purpose actually. Well, why? It's a good question. Why? <laughs> you know, to remind us that we're alive is one thing,
0: <laughs>
1: right? It's like, whew, oh my goodness. I've been running so much. Right. So there's a lot actually, if we think about, well, why would we do that? And I'll leave it to the listeners to explore, like what's the benefit of pausing from time to time on purpose maybe if only for like a few seconds.
0: Well, I think, but, you know. Yeah. well, I think, you know, one of the things that you're dispelling right now is this idea that you have to, that mindfulness um, is this person who is um, meditating for, you know, hours on end and that's the only way to be peaceful.
1: Right, right, right. So that's another, yeah. So for me, mindfulness um, is about isolating again, practices for cultivating a kind of awareness now how we practice and how we cultivate it and you know just what we do with our curiosity about these practices can look many different ways we might end up on retreats and we might end up sitting for hours but that if that's what we think mindfulness is we're misunderstanding it because that's sort of a way of you know, going on that journey. It's not the only Mm way. It's Mm -hmm. certainly not the only way. So first, I think it's important to sort of see that, uh, you know, mindfulness is inviting an exploration of the different ways we might develop the capacity to be present on purpose with curiosity. So how do we develop that capacity? It might be in moments of informal mindfulness, like pausing and noticing the breath and, the research shows, and you know, what by research I mean qualitative reports from people who have practiced for you know over the millennia and contemporary research, neuroscience, cognitive science research have given us reason to, to kind of um, be confident that there are certain things that we can do to support us in deepening our ability to, to be present like that, which do involve maybe. Setting aside time, not necessarily years and hours, but maybe five minutes, as opposed to just an in-breath and an out-breath. And if we can do five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Maybe I could also find time to do that on a regular daily basis. Rest- you know, Reconnecting with our capacity for down regulation when we're stressed, which meditation can help us do. Reconnecting with our capacity to know our emotions as they are arising and then sort of help support ourselves and choosing non harmful ways to manage difficult emotions. Maybe I can, you know, start dealing with my anxiety with less medication. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can sleep more effectively. Maybe I can just prepare myself for presentations that I might have to do, or, um, study in ways that I can read something through two times rather than three, or <laughs> whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> right, right, focus more, right? So there's just like a range of applications. And that includes our interpersonal engagements, our speaking and listening to each other. That includes our working through our conflicts. That includes our unpacking how we've been wounded in interactions with people who look like fill in the blank Mm -hmm. or assumptions we have about people, how all of these things might be impacting us can be an object of mindfulness and how we are in relationship to other people in light of the trainings we're imbibing all the time can also be, you know, one of the many different uh, objects of awareness that we might bring mindfulness to.
0: And as you were talking, I was thinking like, that's, especially when you talk about racial justice and I'll ask you to define that in a, oh, yeah. in a second, but, but just being aware enough, right? Paying attention enough so that you're not, you're not reacting, right, to something automatically.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. right, so that's one. I mean, ooh, there are just so many. So, all right, let me just back up and define racial justice. For our purposes for now. <laughs> I mean, I'm a law professor, so I can talk about racial justice in American legal history and, you know, kind of theories of justice and even including critical race theory and anti discrimination or colorblindness as an approach. I mean, I can think about all those things. But when I think of when I speak about racial justice, I am talking about a kind of way of thinking about it that my law law professor friends often don't. It is, you know, uh, for me about a way of deploying a public facing kind of love in response to that which, as Martin Luther King kind of put, put it, that which stands against love. Like, so I'm not the first person to think about justice and love together. Martin Luther King, you know, was one uh, of those who thought of it that way. Cornell West in our contemporary uh, mm-hmm. philosophical uh, kind of arena, public intellectual arena. He is famous for saying justice is what love looks like in public. Um, you know, so there, is a, there are a lot of people in our, the broad legacy of those who inspire social justice work on the one hand, but also in our contemporary arena, who think about justice and love as having some relationship to one another. And again, it does invite the question, well, what do we mean by love? You know, that's a hard one for us in America or in the (laughs) contemporary world. But so it is about like reconstructing our relationship with this thing called love and seeing Mm -hmm. a place for it in our public and non-transactional, you know, non-familial, care, the care we owe one another, which is another way I put it when I talk to my personal injury law students. You know, we're studying tort law. We're studying, studying what happens when you injure somebody in a car accident. There's a whole legal structure for negligence and malpractice and this and that. But be beneath all of that is a, a big cultural conversation. How much care and responsibility do I owe people when I'm driving my car? Do I mm-hmm. owe them the care to like follow the speed limit? pay attention to the road as opposed to doing all the other things? Are we only doing that because we are required to do it by law? Well, the law is there to remind us. But is there some underlying moral, ethical responsibility we might owe each other? That, to me, is what justice is really inviting us to, to, to think about and be with. And so racial justice. What do I owe people in respect? to deep trainings about whose lives matter, who don't, what Mm. race means, the whole hierarchy. What, first of all, perhaps, what do I owe myself in relationship to that? So in my work, I talk about kind of a personal justice piece of this. How do I get in right relationship with the injustice that I have experienced as a Black racialized body? You know, so what? What is my responsibility to myself around mm-hmm. my own healing, and then minimizing the harm that I put out in the world? So, racial justice for me is what does love look like? Maybe in that sense, in private, to myself, <laughs> um, when confronted with the, you know, some part of me that might be standing against self-care because of what I've imbibed about what race means that might be standing against caring for you
0: right right.
1: about
0: what race means that's an incredible point of view and it makes me think about radical self-care audrey lord so you know real like what you're saying now i think will resonate so much with listeners who who are giving so much um,
1: like to add to it right so because so the first approximation of justice like do no harm do no harm so how can I and again not with without laying a big heavy burden on like not because this can put us in another place of a trip of like oh my gosh I've been causing myself harm around racism it's like enough right there bringing in like this sort of like loving wish to minimize the harm that I might be somehow um, responsible for. And so personal justice about like reclaiming self-care in that radical kind of way. But this is the other part I wanted to add. Like I was with these young scholars and activists actually in Louisville, Kentucky about a month ago. And um, one of the young women made this observation or kind of almost like a call or a challenge to us to think about like, How is it that our efforts to fend off the wounding, you know, to try to bear up against racism and be engaged in the struggle, can take up all of our energy so that we aren't able to bring forth our actual original gifts, medicine, Toni Morrison talked about this too, right? The very purpose of racism is to distract us from what is our work, what our unique, original, beautiful work for this time might be. This is what I liked about the comment from the young sister in Louisville. She was sort of like, it's not just even just we're distracted by racism. Sometimes we are distracted by or preoccupied by or energetically committed to doing work that we think is good work and probably is good work. Certainly somebody thought it was good work. Here's where I'm getting to the question. Like, How are we committing to somebody else's vision of the best or even to good, good enough? And we're like, yeah, this is it's not bad. I'm doing this pretty good. I've succeeded in a certain... Is this your best though? Right. The question. How do we then start to become creators of the world that let's imagine a world that wasn't one where we had to deal with racism and deal with sexism and deal with all these what kind of world if it were up to us to create would we be creating that i think is like right (laughs) may we feel like some sort of approximation of justice and empowerment that enables us to yes you know address the injustice but also be bringing forth that which we're we're actually meant to bring forth. Uh,
0: I think that's actually a good place to stop for now. So we're going to take a little break. We will be back with more from Rhonda V. McGee. If you are interested in learning more about racial literacy, please check out the Rise for Racial Justice website at riseforracialjustice.org and see what courses and resources are available online or by subscription. Rise for Racial Justice is committed to supporting and empowering young people, families, and schools to rise for racial justice. If you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. We are back with Rhonda B. McGee, law professor at the University of San Francisco and author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. You've taught law now for over 20 years, right? Um, What have you enjoyed about teaching law and, you know, what, what do you see your students doing in the world?
1: Oh, yeah, I love this question. (laughs) Yeah, that is the thing that I've enjoyed most has been this opportunity to interact with young people. Now, sometimes young at heart people, right? Not always (laughs) right out of undergraduate, but a lot of them are right out of undergraduate and in their 20s. But having had a chance to participate in the development of like you know kind of a generation now I realize of of people who have come to uh, my law school um, where I've been teaching at University of San Francisco and you know I've helped them in some way and to, to what I've enjoyed um, on the day-to-day of that is just being in these conversations with people and th- you know thinking with them about the things they care about and Um, knowing that in my work, I actually have contributed to their being able to thrive and flourish and, you know, choose how to deploy their beautiful magnificence in the world, just to know that uh, that, In the process of this kind of neoliberal kind of credentialing thing that we do, helping people get a law degree and then helping people pass the bar, um, you know, even though I could imagine maybe a, a world in which there were other ways that people got, you know, not credentialed, but felt themselves capable of thriving in this world at this time, to know that I've supported, you know, thousands of law students. And getting their wings and flying, that that I feel good about that. And then, it, more specifically too, to know I have students who are doing all kinds of things. You know, one of my former students was running the city of San Francisco. I think she may still she's still in there somewhere. I'm not sure exactly what her role is, but she may still just be city manager. Mm. Um, Naomi Kelly, a black woman, right? Mm. Uh, knowing that one of my former students similarly was in San Francisco public um, working in the prosecutor's office, working though as a community advocate in the prosecutor's office, drawing on the classes she took with me, mindfulness and law, race and law. So working as a prosecutor, but from a different perspective, trying Mm. to change from within. One student I know is working in New Mexico to change the, Education system in the K through 12 arena to make sure that Native American and Indigenous Mexican students in New Mexico have more equitable and just educational experiences. She's bringing, you know, lawsuits that have come up, gone up to the New Mexico Supreme Court. Wow, people that I've had the privilege of helping find their wings are flying <laughs> so you know some of the bar now this is not to say there aren't also those stories of students who struggled and mm-hmm. so it's I can't I, I don't you know take the bait of only looking for those students who are who are succeeding in conventional ways I know as well you know some students who struggle with the bar mm-hmm. um, but who nevertheless felt in the way that I was able to kind of walk with them uplifted and better prepared for whatever they end up doing um Mm -hmm. from here so there's yeah there's just something about the the relationships I've been privileged to be in that's been a complete joy and yeah that's really what I would say I've loved the most about being a law professor
0: uh and I'm sure that yeah I, you know if we had students on here they'd probably talk about it. i mean i think it's just a, a wonderful thing to to have someone who is uh, you know willing to move beyond the the classroom material right yes and really speak to the heart um that, that's a beautiful thing for any student so yeah yeah, yeah. okay so before we leave <laughs> yeah we like to ask the guests, like what is lighting them up or soothing their souls and um, ask, you know, it doesn't have to be anything serious. Now we've been having a very serious discussion here, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to be serious. So, um, you know, is there anything that's lighting you up or soothing
1: your soul that you're reading? Ah, well, um, you know, I'm always reading one or another of a book that's helping me deepen that part of what I'm sort of thirsting for right now um Mm. and there are just so many like there's this one that I'm I'm reading and rereading which is called actually the heart of the buddha's teachings Mm. and it's by Thich Nhat Hanh who is a teacher that a lot of people who at least may know a little bit about maybe socially engaged buddhism may have heard of him he was the 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 monk who encountered martin luther king's work and nominated martin luther king jr for a nobel peace prize having Hmm. discovered his work and then as these things happen martin luther king jr also nominated not home for <laughs> um, so anyway they, they, they that is to say they saw in each other that great light that is you know maybe the best humanity can offer one another in hard times to amplify mm-hmm. each other's light so I think the things that I'm that I'm enjoying right now are the things that help us you know feel our natural goodness more connectedness
0: okay and so now what are you watching
1: do I do a little bit of escapist tv watching sometimes I have to Mm -hmm. and so I've been doing escapist tv watching of after the fact watching like some of the things that people were binge watching last year like Ted Lasso, this. Oh, series. I love yes, it. I know. I, <laughs> I just, I didn't watch it last year. I was busy just walking and meditating and doing this and that. And all my friends were watching it. And I was like, oh, okay. And now I'm like, oh my God, you know, oh, no. I just love, right? Like, I just, it's so, it's very, I'm finding it very, it is a good kind of way to um, just escape to. Escape in a way, but also just be, it, it, it has a lot of little nuggets of insight and wisdom.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and finally, what are you
1: listening to? Oh, well, I have been listening to nature, no headphones, no music. I have to live close enough to the ocean here in San Francisco and to the woods, so um, I love being embedded in like the sound bath of nature. And I'm an old school um, Anita Baker and Aretha, and just mm-hmm. some Nina Simone. Sometimes when you're in that kind of a mood, I'm yeah. <laughs> So that's where
0: I am. Uh, that's wonderful. I am so happy that you <laughs> could be with us today. Um, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, thank it's been been a wonderful talk.
1: Thank you. Uh, I have so enjoyed this too, my dear. It's been uh, really, really delightful that we've had a chance to connect this way. So thank you yes. for this, but also for what you're doing. I really, really honor this work that you're doing.
0: Oh, Thank you so much. Um, is there anything that listeners can
1: look forward to from you? Yeah. So I, um, I do offer teachings in the communities um, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. I'm doing an online retreat in February on these themes of beginning again and restoring and healing ourselves. And then I'm also doing a book club around my book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. If you just look online, here's the best thing. <laughs> Check me out at RhondaVMcGee.com, sign up for my newsletter, and you'll have all of these sorts of details. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I happen to do these social things. So yeah, <laughs> and you, can keep, you can keep in touch with me from there.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so that was our guest, Rhonda V. McGee, Professor of Law at University of San Francisco and author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice healing ourselves and transforming our communities. Um, It's a book I recommend uh, for anyone who is doing racial justice work and who wants to be aware, grounded, um, you know, centered. Um, I think it's a really great book. And I invite you back when we continue the conversation about anti-racism and education on
1: rise, for racial justice, the podcast.